Welcome to the Co-Mission Podcast, a place to hear talks, teaching, and conversations from across the Co-Mission network. This week, we're playing a talk from 2017's Planting Collective, a conference Co-Mission runs in partnership with FIEC and Acts 29. Today, Andrew Hurd, the founding director of Geneva Push, speaks on Revelation 4 and cross-shaped ministry. It's been a great time to be together around the word, and I hope it's been a help and an encouragement. We're going to finish this time today in the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 5, and I want to consider with you how the cross changes everything, changes life, changes ministry, changes how we think about those things. And I'm going to do that by showing you one word. So have a look with me at chapter 5 of Revelation. It's the word that you see there in verse new, verse new, verse 9. It's the word new. So here's what we're going to do. My plan is to help you understand what that word means. And I want you just to pause and take note of that. An Australian coming and telling you how to understand English. So let's see if we can work on this together. But that's what I want to do. I want to teach you the meaning of that word, new. Now, I mean, the word new is obvious what the meaning is, but I want to show you it, its significance in its context. Because when you understand that word new in its context, it is a really big deal. You may not seem it, but when you understand it properly, it's powerful, it's transforming, and it's helpful as you step out to plant churches or back into a ministry of a new church plant. And so I want us to kind of keep our eyes, at, you know, one eye, keep it there, verse 9 on you. And my job today is to bring you right through some background and context to help you see its significance. You with me? The book of Revelation, it's given by God to John. It's an unveiling, you know the word revelation, apocalypse, it's the unveiling to see what's always been there, but you can't see because it's the veils pulled across. But uh, Revelation is God pulling back the veil, the curtains are pulled back so that you can see what actually is real behind the visible realities. And what you see when you pull back the curtain is this jaw-dropping insight into truth, the truth about the universe. So behind the apparent mayhem of John's day, and behind the apparent mayhem of our day is God in control. Isn't that the message of, say, chapter 4? Come, let's start there just to get some context. After I, Verse 1, after this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had heard first speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I'll show you what must take place after this. Verse 2, I was in the spirit, and before me was a throne in heaven. And the one who sat on sat there, had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow shone like an emerald. It's all the images of the Old Testament about the place throne of God. That's the picture he sees. He sees surrounding, verse 4, the throne, 24 other thrones with 24 elders. There's peals of thunder, lightning and rumblings, and it's a glorious, extraordinary, powerful image. And then you see in the centre around the throne, verse 6, four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes. They're an extraordinary picture of creatures that are sitting there in the throne room. And then, verse 8, day and night they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, who is, and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honour and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever, 
the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. You've got this beautiful image of praise that's happening in the midst of heaven. And it's kind of like, I don't know if you use this thing, with Mexican wave of praise, kind of starts in the centre uh, and it rolls out and you come into chapter 5, verse 11 and verse 13 and you see it roll all the way out to every living creature and then back in again. It's this extraordinary image of the universe praising its God, gathered around the throne. It's a great encouragement. The message to John is that things may seem to be against God. He may seem out of touch. There might be rulers and authorities that imagine they have the power, but when you pull back the curtain by the power of the Spirit with the eyes the Spirit gives you to see spiritual realities, God is seated on his throne. And in the midst of turmoil, we can trust him. Now, isn't that a word for you today? In your country, in mine, the instability, the difficulties, the uncertainties, uh, the hostility towards the church. We've got uh, a good friend in Australia who's written lately on the idea of, you know, the, the way in which the world has been largely apathetic towards the church for many, many decades. But in the last 10 years, the world wants to drag the church into the marketplace and stone them. <laughs> it's a very different environment we live in. But please drink deeply of chapter four. God's on the throne. Pull back the curtain. He's ruling. Now, there is a particular shape to the praise that occurs in chapter 4, verse 11. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory, honour and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Now, boil it down. What's the content of the praise that's offered to God in the throne room? He's worthy. Why? Why is he worthy? Simple comprehension. Because he created all things. You are worthy because you created all things. But then you come to chapter 5. And something extraordinary happens. There's something astonishing. Something breaks the pattern of eternity. You get this tension in the throne room. A tension with this picture of a scroll in the hand with writing on both sides. It's sealed with seven seals. And I take it the, the scroll is the, um, has within it the plans and purposes of God that are sealed up that can't be opened yet to move forward. And there's tension because verse two, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? Who's worthy to actually bring forward the purposes of God to their completion and their finish? Well, verse three, there's no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. Verse four, I weep. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. There's tension. But the tension is eventually resolved. Verse five, one of the elders said to me, don't weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and it's seven seals. The tensions arrive. There's a wonderful declaration that there is one who has conquered, who is powerful enough to open this scroll and move the purpose of God forward. And he's a lion, the root of David, the great conquering figure. 
who of course in verse 6 turns out to be a lamb, looking as if it's been slain. And I mean, I'm telling you what you know, but that is such a wonderful image, isn't it? It's a powerful piece of literature, writing, that communicates so much more than the words actually simply say. With this kind of jarring of images, you get this kind of great conqueror, warrior, the powerful ruler figure, and a lion, the tribe of Judah, and John turns to see this magnificent figure, only to have his eyes fall on not just a sheep, but an infant sheep, a lamb, who looks as if it's been slain, the weakest of the weakest creature. You know, have you ever met someone that you've heard a great deal about? Have you ever finally met the person that you've heard all this extraordinary things about their accomplishments and their impressive acts and abilities and you finally meet them and, Richard, I thought you'd be taller. <laughs> have you ever had that experience? Actually, actually, Steve, I thought you'd be taller. It's kind of English. I don't know what it is, but you, know, you hear this stuff about people and you finally meet them. Yeah, yeah, okay. It's a... <laughs> Have I offended enough people yet? It, um, the image that greets John seems so out of step. That is, I, meet, I hear of this extraordinary figure and I turn to look and it's a lamb looking as though it's been slain. The image seems wrong except you learn that the thing that makes someone great the thing that is greatness in God's universe is the seemingly weak thing, the act of humble, sacrificial service. Jesus, Philippians chapter 2, though in the image of God, doesn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but makes himself nothing, taking on the very image and servant and dies on a cross, therefore... God exalts him to the highest place and gives him the name above every name, but the name of Jesus every knee should bow. You notice the therefore. It's because of Jesus' humble, sacrificial service to the will of the Father that he's exalted. In God's universe, greatness is service, is sacrifice under the will of God. Now there's a message to us again, isn't it? The world will not applaud what you do as you go into a context to plant a church and you don't get any remuneration, you don't have all the trappings of significance, you watch your friends succeed and move further up the ladder and experience wonderful travel and so on, as you pour yourself out into a lonely, lost place where no one actually notices what you do, it's easy to wonder why you do this. Just remember, Jesus teaches you that greatness is found in humble, sacrificial service to the will of the Father. That's what makes us great. Powerful truth. But that's all background. You come a few verses further into the heart of the passage, or at least to the place I want to point out. Now, upon seeing this figure, look at verse 9. We are told that a new song is sung. And here's the song, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. Now let me unpack that a little bit for a moment before I come back to the word new. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to, uh, you are worthy to take and open the scroll seals because he was slain 
And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe, language, people, and nation, and made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God. Now, why is he worthy to take the scroll? Comprehension? Why is he worthy? Because he was slain. And more than that, because by his blood, he purchased for God people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Now, what you have there is a statement of fact in history. He was slain outside Jerusalem. But you also have a statement of significance. The significance of that death is that he purchased for God men and women from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Um, you know, the um, extraordinary thing about that death, that humble death, that giving up of his life, is that he purchased people for God. And not just purchased, but made that people to be something. A kingdom of priests from all nations, removing racial barriers, bringing together humanity. It's powerful. Friends, we have a powerful message to share. Now, all of that's background. Come back to the word new. Verse 9. That song about the bloods poured out to purchase and make kingdom priests and so on is called a new song in verse 9. Now, the language of new song is not a new idea in the Bible. The language of new song is used a number of times in the Old Testament. So Psalm 98, Isaiah 42, and so on. And when you look at those places, you see something important. The language of new song is not just used simply to refer to a song that's new. I used to think it was. I was converted into a little Anglican church uh, in Manly Vale. There was about 70 people came to church. Uh, so when I was converted, I just joined this group of people. And every now and then the song leader would get up and say, we're going to introduce a new song today because Psalm 98 says to sing a new song to the Lord. And I used to think, wow, the Bible's really relevant, isn't it? Like it helps us keep things fresh and that's really cool. And I sort of thought, oh, awesome. Come and look with me at Isaiah 42, where this phrase is used. Isaiah 42, you see it there in verse 10, the language of new, sing to the Lord a new song. His praise from the end of the earth, you who go down to the sea. Now you look at the context and of course, this is one of the servant songs. This is after Isaiah 40 with a great turning now into comfort, comfort my people. And you get there in verse five, the sovereign Lord God, the creator of the heavens who stretches out his hand, who brings breath. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. Verse six, I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you a covenant. All the way, come down to verse nine. See, the former things have taken place and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. What are these new things? It's a new covenant. It's a saviour who will bring a new experience of salvation. Why sing a new song? Verse 10. Because now we no longer need to live under the judgment of God in lament. So a new song is not just a new song. It's actually 
a statement about a fresh new thing that's happened in God's salvation history and purposes. God does something new. He sets a new place. And so you sing a new song fitting for that new thing. Now, come back to Revelation 9. So 5, come verse 9. They sing a new song. Yes, it hadn't been heard before. But it wasn't like the elders and the living creatures were standing around during morning tea saying to each other, if I have to sing Revelation 4.11 one more time, I'm leaving. Do you know like, I, I cannot cope with this one more time. It's not like they were doing that. The, the fact of God as creator was worthy of being praised forever. Creation's an extraordinary... Creation ex nihilo, creation from nothing. That God can speak a word and being, being, bring everything into being. You are worthy. It's an extraordinary truth. It wasn't as if the song simply hadn't been heard before, although it hadn't been. There was something new that has happened in the universe. The new song marked a new stage in the movement of eternity. The song that had been sung for all eternity has now been eclipsed. A new song is sung in heaven. Get that. The pattern of eternity has been broken. Time isn't just going on and on the same. It has changed. Now, in many places in the world, we are just into change for change's sake. I'm never quite sure if that's the case. In your country, sometimes I'm sure some parts of it are into change and so on. And so I guess the younger generation is kind of into change just for change's sake. Young people particularly get bored of things if they don't change. But that's not what is going on here. The old song was worthy to be sung throughout all eternity God will always be worthy of being praised because he created all things. That that song changes is of immense significance. And that's my point. That's the big point today. A new song is sung in heaven. Astonishing. Now, what could cause such a change to happen in heaven itself, which takes us to the heart of this passage? What could cause a new song to be sung? The death of the lamb that purchased men and women for God. Think with me about the implications of that. I've got four. I've got two preliminary ones and then two harder ones. And I'm gonna finish with the harder ones. So let me do the preliminary ones. The first implication is this. When you appreciate the language of the word new and how it sits in context and how it says that the whole universe has changed because of the death of Jesus purchasing men and women for God, what it shows you, the implication of that is the worth of Jesus. The event of the cross pushes the wonder of creation to one side. Creation's astonishing. But salvation, no, 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 the manner of salvation 
the self-giving love of the Son of God, the fact that he gave himself up to be slain by taking on himself the sin of the world in humble service to the will of a loving Father who desired the salvation of sinners, that Jesus did that made him worthy of eternal praise. It made the heavens change their song. Now, that might not be saying something amazing in the new, new for you this afternoon to say that Jesus is worthy. But what I want to be doing with you this afternoon is show you the truth of that statement, which you may already know, but I want to show you the truth of that statement from another perspective. That's what I'm trying to do. You know, uh, some years ago I was over here and I was staying uh, with one of you. And uh, as I came down to dinner, my host said to me, I just want to let you know that there's a famous... Um, uh, you call them football players, yeah? A famous soccer player uh, was staying, having dinner with us and coming out with us. And I heard him say that and I thought, oh, okay. Sat down at the dinner table and just listened in as the conversation went around looking at this man who's a famous football player. And I thought, hmm, it doesn't seem that impressive. And, you know, they talked about how to spin a ball and do all of that kind of thing. And I listened in. We then got in the car to go to the pub together. And I sat next to him in the seat and he smelt. <laughs> he had a kind of sort of a clothes that felt a bit musty. And I thought, it's a famous football player. And, you know, it didn't seem much to me. We arrived at the pub. And when the door opened at the pub and we walked in, Every eye in the place turned to look at, to look at him. <laughs> Everyone just going like this. And I thought, oh. And then everyone crowded around him at the bar. And then he ended around the public bar with everyone around him talking. And, and he ended up on a stage and with everyone gathered around sharing what. And I thought, oh, famous. The point is this. I knew he was, I heard he was, but until I saw him in a certain context, I hadn't appreciated what that meant. Now, here's the point for Jesus. You may have heard that Jesus is worthy, but were you aware that heaven stopped because of his death? That it changed what happens in heaven that he died? that it caused a new song to be sung by the universe because he died. That thing that happened back then outside of Jerusalem shook the world and eternity held its breath when it happened. The angels longed to look into it. Now, when you appreciate this, you then appreciate that anything that minimizes or diminishes or crowds out the cross of Jesus, and works theology does that, destroys the wonder of who Jesus is. That's why Paul was so hostile. Get this, he was hostile about works theology, not just because it doesn't work, not just because it doesn't save, but because it minimizes the glory of God the Father in his Son who works such a miracle to purchase us by his grace. Anything that minimizes the cross of Christ as the means of salvation by Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone, dishonors our God. I want to encourage you this afternoon to come again with humble gratitude, aware of the worth of Jesus. First implication. Second implication. 
The second implication of the language of new song and how it changes heaven is the need we have to be saved. Such a work was necessary to purchase men and women for God. The cost of the blood of God's own son was necessary to purchase men and women for God. That means the death of Jesus is our only hope. Let me explain what I mean. 2003, I think it was, Aaron Ralston. Has anyone heard of Aaron Ralston? He's a canyoner. And in uh, Utah, the state of Utah in the United States, he was canyoning in a place that's entirely isolated, away from everywhere. No one travels there, or at least very rarely. And as he came down a, a rock wall, an 800-pound rock fell on his right arm, pinned him to the wall. He was there for 127 hours, pinned to the wall. That's five days. He was there stuck. He tried to shift the rock. He tried to break the rock up. He tried everything to get his arm out. After five and a half days, he realised that if he didn't do something desperate, he would die there. And so he broke his forearm and then pulled out an old penknife he had and sawed through his arm and freed himself. And then he hiked a million miles and swum the ocean and was rescued or something like this, didn't it? And Aaron Ralston is now on the talking stage. He goes around the place doing motivational speaking and what have you. It's an extraordinary story. Um, now, just imagine this scenario, though. Aaron Ralston's at a conference, a motivational speaking conference somewhere, and he's telling the story about what happened. This rock falls on his arm and five and a half days and how you've got to be really serious and do anything you can and so on. Big motivational talk. At the end of the event, someone comes up to him from the audience and says, hang on, hang on, Aaron, um, Utah, I know that area. Was the canyon shaped like this? Yeah, 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 yeah. And... Um, the, the cracks and so on. I think I know that canyon. I've been up and down there. And did the rock that fall in your arm look like this, this and this? And he said, yeah, you know the rock. And he said, yeah, I've been there a number of times. Did you know that if you just rock it this way, it comes off your arm? <laughs> now, how do you think Aaron Ralston would feel? He'd be, like he'd be going, oh. Actually, he'd be going, oh. <laughs> but, you know, he'd be kind of going, what was, I, what was I thinking? Do you see? Um, he, he'd be kind of like in this place where he goes, um, I paid such a price and I didn't need to. All I needed to do was, what do you think he spent five and a half days doing? Trying everything to free his arm. Why do you think he paid such a price? Because there was no other way. Friends, I tell that story, actually, let's to let you know too, it took 13 men to move that rock with levers and a hydraulic uh, lift to get it off his hand. God the Father gave his son, gave his only son, so that we could be purchased. That he did that says what? There is no other way to come out from underneath the judgment, the holy judgment of God. Being as best you can will not cut it. If it could, why did God give his son? Being a decent father, being a loving husband, being religious and devout, 
being sincere won't cut it. If it could have, why did the father give his son? You don't pay such a price unless there's no other hope. What do you think the father did? Just made it up? Imagine standing before God the Father on judgment day, saying, look, I tried the best I could, surely that's acceptable, while the son stands there with the wounds still carried for the price he paid to make it possible to be purchased by forgiveness. Why do you think I had him die? Why are you standing here unforgiven? You know, it's tempting to look at people around us and imagine surely they're okay. It's, a, it's, it's tempting as you kind of move through the subways and the train stations and the crowds of people and see them holding hands and loving each other and being courteous to each other. It's, it's tempting to see all of that and imagine surely it'll be all right. But every time you see the cross, every time you see the price the Father paid, every time you see that, here is its message, sin must be so serious. The holiness of God so great. The judgment we are under so horrendous that without such a price, there's no hope. People around us need Jesus. Decent, hard-working people need Jesus. Good parents need Jesus. Other people of, people of other religions need Jesus. There is no other hope apart from Jesus. That's why we plant churches. That's why you must plant churches. That's why you must be about making your churches grow. That's why you must never let yourself be distracted from that. Let the cross help you see past the veneer. There is a deep problem within us. It's called proud, rebellious sinfulness that we can hide. But when you see the cross, you see how serious it really is. Second implication. Now, they're just preliminary. I want to focus now on the significance of that language new again, but with two points. The first one's tricky, the second one's controversial. And I'm going to finish there. Let me give you the f- number three. The implications of the word new. The shape of life today. Now, this one's tricky. We are born into a very impressive world. Creation is very impressive. God as creator is an astonishing truth. And our experience of life is constantly keeping creation truths before us. I see it all the time. I feel it. I taste it. I touch it. The beauty, the richness, the joy that you can see in creation. But heaven is focused on a new thing, the cross. God's work to purchase men and women for God. That work eclipses creation for its wonder and centrality. It's interesting through the book of Revelation that it's the lamb who is seated on the throne and that word is used of Jesus constantly throughout the book of Revelation. It's the lamb who is seated on the throne. 28 times it's used. What's the point? Don't forget the significance of the lamb. He died for us, to purchase us. He is now in eternity with scars, forever marking his resurrection body, reminding the universe of his readiness to humble himself to the will of his father at such a cost to save sinners. That ought to have an impact on us now. And in fact, it ought to change the shape of life now. Keep wrestling with me. We grow up creation-centered. Life is about enjoying life, making the most of life, experiencing as much as we can and enjoying marriage, family, kids, friends, relationships, travel. We grow up creation-centred where life is about enjoying creation. 
but here it is. Christianity can be creation-centred in many people's lives. Creation can be the thing that dominates many Christians. So they're saved. They're someone who's now come by the merits of Jesus to the Father, but that salvation leaves them now thinking, I'm free now to enjoy creation as a Christian. I'm free now to enjoy God the Creator. And yes, there'll be praise for salvation in the cross, but it will always be an extra thought and an add-on because a creation-centered Christian will be focused on enjoying creation as a Christian. Leisure is important. Experiencing many things is important. As Christians, of course, creation-centered Christians. But when you read Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, and understand it in its context. Christianity is meant to be cross-centered with the enjoyment of creation on the side. As the fill, viewed now through the eye that knows who made it and why he made it and what he's done in the midst of it for our salvation. At the center of life is meant to be a growing awareness of the cross-centered heart of God, who at heart is about seeking and saving the lost and for whom the mission impulse is central, not an add-on, whose heart is for men and women from every nation to be saved. He paid such a price. And it's that heart of God that pushes aside all other concerns. And creation, it's merely meant to be the place where this salvation is worked out. To be enjoyed, yes, all good things are given for our enjoyment, but not as the centre with mission added on, but with winning the world at the centre and the other added on. Do you see what I'm saying? Creation-centred Christianity versus cross-centred Christianity. Which one is God? Which one are the heavens? When you see life through the cross, God's greatest act, greater than creation, greater than the incarnation. When you see God's greatest act, it changes everything. It changes your prayers. Have you noticed the Lord's Prayer? The Lord's Prayer has six requests. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, you will be done. Give us today, six requests. Have you noticed that every single one of them, bar one, is about the kingdom? God's glory, his will being done finally, which is a prayer actually about the future consummation. I don't think it's about your workplace finally having some justice expressed there. I think what Jesus is saying is that your kingdom come, your will be done on earth is actually a prayer about the final consummation when God will be seen as the victor and the conqueror of evil in the final end. The last prayers are about us experiencing that great salvation in the kingdom of God where we're redeemed and forgiven and free from evil. One of the requests is about daily needs in this creation. Now, however you understand that statement, and some have different views, but however you understand it, what it means is this. Jesus recognises you have needs in creation. But he is cross-centred. He is dominated by the kingdom with an awareness of creation on the side, do you see? It shapes your prayers. It shapes your giving, your money. It shapes your commitment to the church as a gathering of God's people, as the redeemed people. That's at the centre of our life. It's not an add-on. Third point is this, you can live Christianity as creation-centred, but God and the universe are cross-centred. 
grasp what has happened in the cross and let it shape the way you live life last. The last implication is this. The primacy of proclamation, not transformation. There's language that's being used in various contexts in Australia, and I've noticed it in some of my travels that it's being used elsewhere. There appears to be a shift in emphasis among many church leaders from the primacy of proclaiming the gospel for salvation to a desire to see communities transformed culturally, socially, politically. Now, as soon as I say that, I know who you're thinking of. And I know you might imagine a particular figure. Can I encourage you to put that figure out of your mind and put any particular figure or church out of your mind? Let's not talk about who might or who does. That's not the point. Because I don't know enough about actually what they all say to know whether I've got them right. Let's just talk about the issue and the principle. You with me? The danger with that particular language, work on the ideas for a moment. Heaven shifts its focus from creation to redemption. Jesus is on the throne as the lamb. Yes, there's a new creation celebrated in the last chapters of Revelation. But through it all, there's this clear emphasis that God is concerned more than transformation, even though that is there. He's concerned about the establishment of a new relationship between himself and a people through forgiveness. It's the power of the cross to redeem people that celebrate it. Not the power of the cross to transform creation. It's the power of the cross to redeem and purchase men and women for God that celebrate it. Even in the end, the new creation, the greatness of it is God is now with men. The new relationship that's established through the cross. In the context of a new transformed, yes, when you go through the book of Acts, look at all the preaching and how it's emphasizing these things. It's the preaching of the book of Acts is, um, uh, you, you know, um, with many words, he sought to urge them to find forgiveness. We can now be forgiven from all those things that we couldn't be forgiven of before. Um, you've got a day when he will judge the world with righteousness. You've got this language of be reconciled. They were focused on seeing people experience being purchased. The point is powerful. The focus and priority of God's work in this age is the establishment of rebels back to himself through the proclamation of the cross. The priority of God's work in this age is the establishment of rebels back to himself through the proclamation of the cross. And here are my final words. Never lose sight of that. Yes, there's further implications of this work of redemption. Yes, there's a larger scale of hope that we long for. But never lose sight of the fact that at the centre of it all is the cross, the event that purchased men and women for God from every nation. That's at the centre. And that's to be at the centre of our preaching, our passions, our efforts, our time, our labour, our giving, be proclaimers before all else and live out the righteousness that comes from that proclamation. Thanks for listening to the Core Mission Podcast. 
Find out more about Co-Mission's vision for church planting in London by going to commission.org slash planting. Next week, Tim Keller on Leadership Wisdom for London.